Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Link. Guys, people were just checking their headphones. They're like, they're like tapping it. Their AirPods. They're like, oh no, is my blanky headset working? What's, no. an, what's an AirPod? AirPods are the little thingies that um, um, that you put in your ear. They're like Bluetooth, like Apple Bluetooth. They're I call them tusks. <laughs> oh yeah, those things. Yeah, yeah. I, tusks actually made it comprehensible to me. Yeah, yeah. I like that you called them lanky headphones as well. Yeah. Anyway, like, I'm Scott Powell. I'm Father Peter Mussett. You time to tune in to the Lanky Phone. <laughs> Lanky Phones. The Lankagram. Lankagrams. 29th Sunday at Ordinary Time. Yeah, I think I said it was the 28th. I, my, my apologies. Yeah. Um, 29th. 29th. And then the uh, first <clears throat> reading is from Isaiah 53, 10 to 11. Very, very important passage. From the end of the fourth and final servant song of Isaiah. So more on that soon. Our responsorial <laughs> psalm is from Psalm 33, verses 4 to 5, 18 through 19, 20, and 22, with the response coming from verse 22. Our second reading is from Hebrews, mm. uh, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And our gospel is coming from the gospel of Mark, where we have been for the last uh, little bit, right? This Mark? is one of those rare times when we are we are literally following the narrative piece by piece. Which is exciting because I like the consistency of actually going through a narrative. Mm. We did that with John 6 a few weeks back, right? Yeah. Which I love. Um, I don't... Well I'll, well, I'll talk about my frustration with it in a second. Yeah. <laughs> Which does, shouldn't be a frustration, but I will say this. The uh, the sort of um, explanation or, or the, the... It's not the gotcha moment. The, the, the payoff. That's the word I'm looking for. The payoff of our passage from this week actually comes in the passage from next week, which is really exciting, but it's kind of hard for me to talk about the gospel this week without its fulfillment or, or, you know, its payoff, which comes next week. It's really good in the sense that there's consistency in the liturgy that we're really reading through the narrative, but there's also the fear that the entire congregation will have forgotten the reading from this Sunday (laughs) by the time we get to next Sunday. And so we're like, wait, why does that have anything to do? And then, you know, as a church, we kind of, we miss all of these connections because we parse it out in such a way. That, you know, if you're just reading it as a lump whole, you're like, oh my gosh, this whole thing together is, wow, that's nuts. So I'm going to do my best to not get ahead of myself um, this week and talk about <laughs> next week's gospel, which is actually one of my, it, it I'm not going to, I always say th- that's like, this is my favorite passage in the Bible. I think next week's is my favorite passage in Mark, Got but it. it only makes sense because of this week. So oh, more okay. on that later. Anyway, Mark 10. Don't call me a moron. More on that later. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, that was good. Yeah, thanks. Tickled my fancy on that one. Hey. All right. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. <laughs> I like the fact that you didn't even say the verses. I, I read them while I was sitting here, and then I didn't even realize you didn't say it. But now no. you said it. And... I was proud of myself for remembering that I didn't say it. Me too. Before I got on my soapbox and got <laughs> preachy. And start... Dude, you're like you're like, um, you're like a balloon. James Bond. Like a balloon. (laughs) Okay. Just like pressurized with like all this good stuff inside just waiting to get out. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't even know what that, that was a bad You just don't always want to tell people they're like a balloon. Honey, you look like a balloon today. Don't (laughs) say that to your wife. Ever, ever, ever. You didn't say I look like a balloon. You just said I'm like a balloon. Yeah. I mean, Scott, you're lanky, dude. (laughs) I'm trying. I, the older I get, the harder it is to maintain the lank. Dude, you know That's that I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm recovering a lot of length. Look at that. 
Speak, yeah, you are. You really are. You've been disciplined these last few weeks. I know. Tell Month you what, though. Half, six weeks. The older I get and the less lanky I get and the more that I realize I can't eat all of the stuff that I used to eat and not care about, mm. the more I miss the 90s style of the baggy clothes. Dude. Which is a little bit more forgiving for those who were lanky. Yeah. And couldn't maintain our lankiness. Yeah. But now everything's tight. Which, Dude. you know, what you see is what you get. You, got, you know, you can't. Janko Jeans finally went out of business all the way. <laughs> They held on. Yeah, they held on. No. They held on. No, they did not. Yes, they did. Wow. Which is remarkable. I I mean, we're almost into 2030 and... um, 2030? Yeah. Do you know what year it is? Yeah, it's 2027. What are you doing? What's happening? Nothing. (laughs) You're getting weird. I am weird. All right. See, you know what it is? Is I've been watching Fringe. <laughs> and What's I don't know what Fringe is. Fringe is it's a sci-fi show, okay. and um, nobody cares about that. They care about Isaiah. So okay. let's talk about Isaiah. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Isaiah fifty-three. Um, like we said, this is the last of what are called the servant songs. Um, I, I want to. I'm struck by something. Um, this last week, I I've been meeting with uh, I meet with students and people in the community regularly to talk about theological questions. It's it's kind of a dream job. I just get to meet with people and talk theology. Um, you get to have to deal with all the hard stuff in people's <laughs> lives. I just deal with their theological questions, which is great. Yeah. Which always then kind of veers into into real life, and I start to get freaked out. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what to do. Go talk to Father Peter. Go talk to Father Peter. Go to confession. Um, but <laughs> I was talking to this uh, this Jewish gal who I've been meeting with regularly, and we're just kind of it's been so fun. We're working through these things, and we somehow started talking about the prophecies of Isaiah. I forget how we got there, and she was saying that. One of the big disagreements that Jewish people and Christians have about these prophecies, about the what we call the servant songs, and they're like, well, yeah, well, you guys think that these prophecies, that these passages are all about Jesus. We think they represent Israel as a whole. It's the suffering of the people of Israel. And I had this great opportunity to be like, yeah, us too. And it was one of those classic Catholic both and, and she she hadn't heard that she talked to a lot. She's one of these people that talks to a lot of people about theological things from a lot of religious traditions to kind of get, you know, she's really exploring and trying to hear different people's Mm. points of view. And she's met with a lot of Protestant pastors and friends and they've not apparently given her the, the, the kind of response that I did because she was sort of surprised to hear that, wait, you guys believe that it, it is about Jesus, these prophecies, this suffering person is Jesus, but it's Jesus who takes on the corporate identity of all of Israel. Right. She was like, oh, well, that actually fits. That's consistent with what my tradition believes. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, no, we know that. Like, we, we get that. It's This is speaking about, it, Jesus only makes sense in the, the Catholic Christology if Jesus, it's this mantra. I think I mentioned on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, a professor of mine always said, Christology is Israelogy. You cannot understand who Jesus is if you don't understand what the people of Israel were called to be. Right. Because Jesus is Israel. And it's not this sort of false idea that you have the God of the Old Testament who's pursuing this people of Israel who keep blowing it. And then at one point he decides to move on and move on to Christians. All right. Well, I'm, I'm done with the Israelites. I'm going to move on to these people. No, no, no. There, there's a continuity in that Jesus is Israel and then we are incorporated into that. Right. But there's not this break between old Israel, new Israel or Old Testament, New Testament. No, there's a continuity and there's a consistency. Right. So this prophecy at the end of what we call the servant songs, this is the most intense one. It's the most um, kind of brutal in a certain sense of these songs or these prophecies about the suffering of, as it's described in Isaiah, this person 
who again in the Jewish tradition represents Israel as a whole, but again, we see as both. But this is the most brutal one about how he's going to be crushed and he's going to be bruised and spat upon and abused, but there's going to be vindication at the end. Um, and I'm struck by, well, I want to pause before we go on. I think I cut you off earlier. Maybe I didn't know. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I've had, I have so many thoughts as you talk. Yeah. Uh, the, the first one is, 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 um, it's like, this is the most exciting thing that is existing about Jesus for me is that like we talk about Jesus as alpha and omega, as uh, we talk about a typology that mm. Jesus is present in all of these things, but then to realize and understand how Jesus is fulfillment is the, is like the most exciting encounter that I have with Jesus mm. is that, is that he is fulfillment of what was and what is to come. All things come through him and go back to him. Yes. Um, and, and, and so, so when we see that Jesus, you know, Jesus, the, uh, a people are, are embodied in its leader. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and, the, that's the principle. That's the principle. And, and what's so cool. Or rather the leader embodies the people. The people right. are embodied. In, I, I see. Okay. I had to get there grammatically. Yeah. 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 You're right. Both and. Um, but this, what, what's so cool is that, that, um, Israel is always super blatant about the failures of its leaders. The scriptures are. Right. So in Israel's retelling of her history, right. she is super blatant. I'm not convinced they are in the moment. No. But in the retelling of the story, that, that's that's one thing. I mean, say what you will about the Old Testament and the people of Israel. There is definitely a marked, marked moment in the story of salvation history where Israel has her eyes opened and sees, oh, yeah, we're not falling into that again. We We will look back. I mean, the whole story of salvation history, the whole story of the Old Testament is Israel failing to to tell the story of where they have come from and thus falling into the same sins of the past, if not worse. But there definitely comes a moment where history becomes profoundly important. I've been teaching this class for the parish on uh, the story of Elijah and Elisha, who show up in the books of First and Second Kings. And the books of First and Second Kings, the project of the books of Kings is... Looking back from the perspective of history, of this brokenness of Israel, of saying we, we are a disaster, we've gone into slavery, we've been oppressed, our kingdoms have been wiped out. How did we get here? What happened? And it goes back very somber and soberly and, and tells the story, yeah, this is how it happened. Mm -hmm. This is where we've come from. And I, I was telling the class last night that it's it's such a significant thing for me to teach something like that now because ecclesially, politically, socially, right. our culture is in this point where you, 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 know, you got to – I made the joke that – and maybe this has always been the case, but I think it's astute now. I mean we, we joke as a culture about how everyone is terrified of Thanksgiving because I have to face my family and they have different political beliefs than I do and there's going to be these fights and like the whole country is tense about conversing with each other. And you got to look at just the, the the pure polarization of our, our our country, and just be like, how did we get here? Right? How did that happen? Yes. And I think it's an important venture to go back and ecclesially too, looking at the church and all the scandals. How did this happen? Mm -hmm. And then to go backwards, really soberly, and say, oh yeah, this is how it happened. So that's what Israel actually. It's one of the greatest gifts that Israel gives us in the course of salvation history, is looking back and exposing sin for sin. Right. It's like VH1 behind the music. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> what a great analogy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Is that show still on? No, I'm sure it is. I isn't. spent a lot of college afternoons watching either reruns of 90210 or that. Yeah. It's the only two stations we got in Steubenville. But but this is the it's this funny thing to where um what we're experiencing right now in Jesus is that he is continuing. Right now, right now, or in the scriptures right now? Um, okay, yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Both and. Touche. Um, th- th- that, uh, what I experienced with Jesus in looking and seeing how he fulfilled these, fulfilled these things is that there is no VH1 behind the music for him. There is no VH1. What, what do you mean? It means that we, we okay. can... we can doesn't ex- have cable. We can examine Jesus and see how he remains sinless in the face of all of these things. And oh, that for him. How, well, he, how, he, how he actually embodies, like how he's taking up the suffering servant in the absolute right way in the, in, as Israel. Now, like he takes the sin on of Israel, but he himself remains sinless. He takes the sin on of Israel, but he himself remains sinless. That's absolutely true. But, but, and maybe I'm misunderstanding, or maybe I'm maybe I'm being you look too like picky. You are. Maybe I'm doing too picky about it. Probably. But, and maybe I'm stretching the analogy too far. Yes. But we can't negate the VH1 behind the music piece of this. No. Because Jesus really, he actually does. It's not that he just abandons abandons it, and it's you know he is what we were supposed. Yes, he is the idealized form of Israel. He is what Israel was supposed to be. That's all true. But he also does take on all of the dirty laundry and baggage and history. Of Israel, right, and that's it what makes it so beautiful. Yeah, when you encounter him in the midst of that, right. But I think it's easy to fall into this image of Jesus, yes, who who is idealized Israel, but we don't have to worry about all the dirty laundry and the baggage of Israel. No, we can't separate that from the picture. He doesn't produce the dirty laundry. No, it's it's that's taking a, it's taking the negative it's taking the negative space and actually. F- f- fulfilling it. Uh, okay, let's yeah. stop with the neon. Okay, okay. No more analogies. No more analogies. It's kind of like when you give an analogy and it doesn't work. And I was trying to think. <laughs> I wanted analogy. to do an analogy too. As soon as I said that, isn't that so funny? We're so rebellious as a people. and we're so alike. How annoying! I know. Okay, let's move on to the text. Um, let me just read this. It's what is it? Two 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 verses. And I want to ask you a question about what you think about something because I've been I've been reflecting on this all morning, and this is kind of this is kind of good. I'm very proud of myself on sort of a, a spiritual and theological level for this. There's a passage here that I was very confused by. And so I started going to all the different translations I had and saying, okay, uh, different translations do it differently. And let's see what the commentaries say. And then I kind of stopped that because that's always my go-to. What does somebody else say? And I I don't usually do this. And so this is kind of confessional for me. I don't usually do this. And I just sort of sat with the verse and I sat with it and I kind of prayed with it. And then I kind of came up with my own (laughs) analogy. I did come up with an analogy. (laughs) but, But you know what I mean? There's something about... And this is this is my own this is me testimonial I, I don't know what it is but as a as a but I think it's important because again when I study the scriptures and, and I, I feel like a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are people that want to be serious about studying the scriptures yes they want to know this stuff they uh-huh. want to spend time reading it they're 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 not they they want this and for me when I study the scriptures. I spend a lot more time reading commentaries about the scriptures than I spend reading the scriptures. And there's a place for that, but I spend dangerously little time just with the text and reflecting on it and reading it again and again, kind of tossing it back and forth in my mind and my heart. You know what I mean? I love, look at, you know, my bookshelf in my office, it's all books about the Bible. And then there's one shelf of a bunch of Bibles. You know what I mean though? And we can overemphasize reading about the thing rather than the thing. 
Mm. And so I forced myself. It wasn't easy to do that this morning and sit with this because I didn't understand. And I came up with a football analogy. So, okay, okay. Give me the football analogy. Well, give so it, it says, to me, man. So, well, here's what our translation, and there is translation issues because it's unclear. But what our translation says is the Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. Mm. which is what I got hung up on. And then it goes on. It says, if he gives his life as an offering for sin, he shall see his descendants in a long life and the will of the Lord will be accomplished through him because of his affliction. He shall see the light in fullness of days through his suffering. My servant shall justify many and he shall bear their guilt. Now you, you can't, I read the whole thing yep. because I just want you to be absolutely clear. You cannot, I don't think as a Christian, you can read that and not see Jesus. You can read it as an Israelite or a Jewish person and see the nation of Israel, but it's hard to see the fulfillment of this. Yeah, it's what Israel's supposed to do. It's a personification of the suffering of Israel, but geez, Christologically, how can you read this and not see Jesus? Right. But I'm hung up on that first line. The Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. And there's other translations. You're 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 uh you're furrowing your brow right now. Curios bolethai. Here we go. Um Catharasi. Mm-hmm. Catharasi. That is an interesting word because we get it's the word we get catharsis from. Catharsis. To to cleanse or to that's that's wild. Crush is an interesting translation. It's not even the crush that I'm that I'm hung up on. It's the pleased that I'm hung up on. Bule-tai. The Lord was pleased, or the Lord was some some translations say it was the Lord's will to crush him in infirmity, or the Lord was okay with crushing him in infirmity. That's where I'm hung up. It's because we know that um, God doesn't will evil, right? He, right? he cannot because he is all good and all loving. And so it's hard to not get hung up on the Lord being pleased. I mean, we. It, this is the paradox of Christianity, right? On one level you have, uh, who, who is the great saint that said, that talked about, oh, happy fall, oh, um, oh, oh, It's the whatever. exalted. Oh, yeah, blessed, blessed sin of blessed Adam. Blessed sin of Adam that brought us so great a redeemer. Right. We're not saying, oh, great, they sinned. That's awesome because now we get a redeemer. It's, you know, this happened. We wish it hadn't. It was evil, but God great, great brought great good out of it. Right. But we can't, it, it's hard to wrap my mind still around God being pleased with evil. God doesn't want, you know, we don't, Catholics don't have this notion of God, which I actually got to some degree in my more Protestant days of the very kind of judicial view of God, the the litigious view of God, that there is sin, it has to be atoned for, somebody's got to pay, there's got to be bloodshed, so I'm going to send my son. He will shed his blood, which is not the right Christological way to look at it, right? No. Is that Jesus freely offered himself, and the response of humanity was to kill him, which is appropriate that he gives himself in totality, right? but there's still a great evil here. So how can God be pleased by that? And here's what I came to. Here's okay, my got it. And the football. I don't know if the football analogy is the right one, but I was I was I was um, teaching. I was I was talking to the focus team. We were doing a Bible study on um, the uh, suffer the the temptation in the wilderness. Remember, right after Jesus' baptism, he goes in the wilderness to tangle with Satan, where he's tempted three times. Remember right. this? And and it's a great example of Jesus embodying Israel. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tempted by the same things that Israel is tempted by in their 40 years of wandering in the Exodus times, right? Right. And I gave them the analogy, and I'm sure I didn't make this up. I read it someplace. But 
it's, you know, we're used to that passage. We've heard it a million times. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, 40 days, blah, blah, blah. But I think we forget how much weight the scriptures are actually giving to that because he doesn't suffer from the temptations until after the 40 days of doing what? Uh, Suffering and fasting. Fasting. Yeah. But I mean, and I was just, I've tried to stress this to the focus team and and the, the Bible study of... I don't fast very often. I'm not a good faster. This is a big confessional podcast for me. You're but, fairly slow. Arr, but you know, uh, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday will roll around. And like by one o'clock in the afternoon, I'm like, this is the worst thing on earth. I hate, <laughs> I hate Lent and everything is horrible and I hate everyone. And I'm grumpy. And you know, yep. it's like been a couple hours of not eating, eating anything. And um, I think of 40 days of that. Like literally just to feel the weight of like, I can, I I literally physically can barely make it through a day before dinner of trying to fast and then trying to multiply that by 40 and just trying to picture the state that Jesus in his full humanity would have been at, at the end of those 40 days. And that's when he's tempted. Yeah. That's when, you know, the first thing is turn these into bread, 40 days of no food. You better believe he wanted some bread at that point. And we knew Jesus wasn't going to sin. He's not going to give in to the evil one. But the analogy was, you know, it's like a wrestler going into a wrestling match with tying both of his arms around his back. And like, now if I win this wrestling match against this huge opponent, I have both my arms tied around my back. Think of what a greater victory it's going to seem like now that I've, I've, you know, given myself this this handicap in a certain sense now that I'm going to do this. That's what the scriptures are showing us. Mm. So I was thinking about that. That was kind of in my head. And I'm thinking about God. It's not that God is pleased to see his son crucified. There's no pleasure that God takes in that. But I was imagining like, maybe it's not the football analogy. Maybe it's like a card shark, right? When if somebody is, my, my dad used to shark people at pool when he was growing up. And I love kind of hearing the stories of that. But you know, when you show up and you're like, oh, I don't really know how to play pool. And you know, you're kind of playing these games and maybe you're down a few games and it all seems lost. And you're like, you got that little smile. You're like, I'm going to break out the secret weapon now. Like, you know, it's coming. You feel like everything's lost or like a basket. We saw the movie Flubber. Remember the old, old yeah, school yeah, Flubber? Absolutely. And it's this basketball team, right? That's being utterly destroyed. They're co- totally being obliterated. And the scientist guy knows he has the secret weapon. He doesn't like seeing the basketball team being defeated, but he's like, the secret weapon's about to come out. I'm about to watch the tide turn. I take no joy in the, in the being beaten, but I take joy in the fact that I know what's about to happen. Yeah. And I was reflecting on that. It's not that God is taking any pleasure in seeing his son being crucified and suffering, but he knows that the tide is about to turn. Mm. Everyone's watching this, and it's that feeling of you're seeing what everybody else is feeling, but you know that something's about to change. You know the secret weapon is on the way. You know that they're about to put the guy on the field who is the team's secret weapon that nobody sees coming. That death is about to be totally defeated. It's not that you're rejoicing in the in the evil. It's that you're rejoicing in the victory that is about to come that no one sees coming. Mm. And I was really moved by that reflection today. Ooh, yeah, that's good. That, I mean, to, to bring Flubber into this is so awesome. <laughs> you have to bring Flubber in. Right? Dude, I love that, that you're... That you're meditation included flubber it did yeah like the, because it's it's so it's so right <laughs> it is it's just like because yeah god is pleased to know that because this is where we become limited in and how we approach faith oftentimes mm. what we're doing is we're just trying to make it through yeah, exactly right versus the the experience of here 
we have no idea how this fidelity is about to explode right. in in the graces of God. Which is the psalm. Mm. I don't know if you were saying that on purpose, but you're essentially articulating what the psalm says. I mean, look at the response. Lord, let your mercy be upon us as we place our trust in you. Right. We're placing our trust in you. We're moving forward. We're struggling. Right. But please let your mercy be upon us. We don't know how that's going to play out. We don't know what that mercy is going to look like in the end. But we're placing our trust in you, mm. and we are going to move forward. Yes. And we don't know how the end is, but we know that you know what the end is. So please let your mercy be upon us. I, I almost imagine this being on the lips, or maybe at least in the heart, I don't know, of Jesus in the agony in the garden before going to the cross, right? When mm. he says, if it be your will, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So I'm going to place my trust in you, Father. Mm-hmm. Show me your mercy. Right. And I, you know, who knows what, what all he was praying or had in his heart at that moment, but that's the kind of thing that this psalm seems to be expressing. Well, and it's like, Lord, uh, upon those who hope for his con- uh, kindness to deliver them from death yeah. and preserve them in spite of famine. Yes. That, that it's like, <laughs> that's it. That, that it's, that, that there's, there's something that, that we wish was happening, but we don't yet see. Yes. And so our soul waits for the Lord who so we is wait. our help. And we wait in fidelity. Again, I've, I've talked about how right. I was teaching this class on Isaiah, or on uh, Elijah, who this is what Elijah embodies. We get so much of the, the Catholic spiritual life, the prayer tradition from the story of Elijah, right. who is out in the wilderness, suffering, struggling, hungry, dark night of his senses and his soul, wondering, like, where is there anybody left? Am I alone? Are you going to care for me? Are you ever showing up? Right. But where so many other people in the scriptural tradition face those trials and them temptations and they say, all right, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. Right. I'm going to go off to another country where they have food. I'm going to go pledge alliance to somebody else, or I'm going to worship some God who will take care of me. I'm going to, I'm going to do something else. Elijah patiently waits. He's like, I know you're going to, sh- I trust you're going to show up. I'm putting my faith in you. So please show me some mercy here. Show mm-hmm. me what, what you have for me. And then what that mercy actually is. I mean, this is this is the flubber again. <laughs> what we don't flubber. I'm 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 about to overuse the flubber analogy. Dude, this which, is, I think I think today is a day where we <laughs> beat to death any analogy that we that we're using. And let me be clear. I'm not talking about flubber. Um, uh, th- there was like a newer, newish version of flubber. I mean, the absent-minded professor. I think that's what it was called. Like the, the original one, right? Yeah, the yeah, old school and black white. and white. That's what I love. Yeah, yeah, where they have the football team. Yep, and... the football team, and it's so it's so overwhelmingly corny with with bad. Um, actually, for the time, it was like cutting edge special it, effects and stuff. Yeah, and it was pretty edgy humor-wise too. It was, but if you watch that old school movie, like the special effects, that they're like over the top. And the way that, you know, the flubber, the bounciness on the basketball player's shoes, like it's it's almost too much. Right. You're like, they're just they're like flying through the ceiling. <laughs> it's like the, the they've gone overboard with it, which I kind of like that by sake of analogy. Yes. Because here is humanity in this state of, okay, Lord, we don't know what you're doing, but we need something and we are suffering and we are experiencing, says Israel, the suffering servant prior to the vindication. We're just experiencing the getting beat up. We're just experiencing the getting pierced. Mm. We're just experiencing the being um, mocked. We're not seeing the other side of that, but we're placing our trust in you. This is what the scriptures are all leading us to. And then what Hebrews does is show you that, well, what you've been waiting for, it's kind of like flubber. 
it actually is going to launch you so much further up than you ever dreamed was possible. Mm. It's not just going to give you an edge. It's going to launch you out of the stratosphere. You know what I mean? It's, it's, that's what Hebrews is trying to express. And Hebrews, remember the context of Hebrews, it is by its own definition a, a word of exhortation, not exactly a letter, not exactly a homily, but it's a word of exhortation written to Jewish Christians, so people from the Jewish tradition who have become Christian, who are facing probably tremendous persecution, tremendous pressure to throw in the towel because this stuff doesn't make any sense. And people who are saying, yeah, I don't know if I get it. This is abstract. This Jesus, he ascended into heaven. He's our high priest. He's the temple, which I, I know I'm supposed to get, but I know where the temple is. I know where the high priest is. And Jesus is supposedly those things, but I can't see him anymore. And like, what is, what is this? And in the midst of trial and suffering, you really might be tempted to throw in the towel and be like, you know what? I understood my old faith. Mm. I understood life before. I don't understand now. Mm. And so Hebrews is saying, no, let me help you understand. Because if you actually knew what you have bought into and mm. what you have entered into, if you saw what this really is, there's no way you would turn back. And so we're entering closer and closer to the central section of Hebrews where it's describing why Jesus is a better high priest, mm. a more perfect high priest than any concept of high priest that you had before. He is not only high priest, but he is actually the offering, the victim, the priest, and the altar all wrapped into one. Right? Which this is, is why we reverence the altar. In, which is why we absolutely right. And because, so, because it embodies all of those realities. And so what is a priest at priest. its heart? Priest is and I don't mean just a Catholic priest, because lots of religions have priests. One who right? offers sacrifice. Well, that's what a priest does, right? But what is a priest? A priest is a representative and an intermediary between God and, and, and the exactly. family or the people. Yeah, I think, and I was pushing you toward that, because I think that's a universal-ish definition of what oh, priesthood absolutely. is. Absolutely. I'm, I'm always trying to talk to people about the, 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 there, there's something actually intrinsic to the human person that needs priest. Mm. Which, which human history has shown. Right. It's only in modernity that we've sort of abandoned this thing that every civilization has held to. Oh, no, no. We, we have priests. Well, that's absolutely very true. Yeah, it's your scientists true. and doctors. That's very true. Uh, I, I even think we've moved on to celebrities and, and loudmouth politicians. <laughs> I, I, we have priests. <laughs> it's hard to say who they are Dude, at the any, moment. Anybody who considers a loudmouth politician a priest. <laughs> yeah, is... that was the wrong. Political commentators, maybe. News personalities who talk about politics. I don't know. Whatever. I don't know. But, well, we have people that we it, well, in, in consider that case, our intermediaries, right? Uh, we do. This is the thing, but but it, but it it involves some sort of specialized knowledge and specialized position, and any and anybody and everybody's a commentator at this oh, point in time. True. So like, it's true. Every everything's broken down on that level. Whereas like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know the the revered journalist. But maybe it used to be at some at, at, at a some certain point. Sense. Yeah, that's true. Maybe we've given up our priests for just prophets. Well, but this is the thing is that is that I'm looking at Hebrews and and I think this actually might help help kind of understand something about what a priest does. Keep going with your priest idea. Well, I just want to fit and I'll go just there. very quickly and then the, just because so by definition, yeah, what a priest does is offer sacrifice, prayer, teach, all those things. As an intermediary. But they are an intermediary between the divine. And again, I'm universalizing this to all religions have had some concept between the divine and humanity. Right. And God and man, right? So why is Jesus then, according to Hebrews, a better high priest than Caiaphas, say? Well, what is a high priest? It's or a priest. It's an intermediary between God and man. Well, who better 
to know how human being. I'm I'm getting around in a complicated way. What better intermediary between God and man than God who has become man? Right. And that's why he is the perfect high priest, because there's only so much that you know about God. There's only so much you can teach and encourage and inspire the people of God with about God, because you are not him. You have your job and you are an intermediary. But if God himself comes and shows himself to us and teaches and preaches and offers sacrifice to us. Well, then you have the problem, but do you really understand us? God is so far beyond us. He's so much bigger. Does he really experience what it means to be a human? Well, he takes on all of humanity as well. Mm -hmm. So the God who is intermediary between God and man is God who is man. Who does what? Offer himself as a sacrifice back to himself on behalf of himself for all of us, which we are all caught up in which is kind of a complicated, almost convoluted theology, but there is such an airtight consistency with what God has done in the divine plan that what the author of Hebrews is saying, there's no way you can get better than this. Like if you realize, how can you go back to Caiaphas, the high priest, or Annas, or whoever the high priest is at the time, if you realize that your high priest is actually God himself and fully you, He is all you and all God, and now he has given himself back to God on your behalf, and you get to be entered into that. If you actually saw that, and this is a little bit complicated. Well, you could only only get to it in reflection. You can only get to it in reflection. I mean, honestly, there's no way in an immediate manner to grasp that. Right. There's not. It's just you, you, you can't like it's too much. But I think there's there's almost you almost get a principle for evangelization in here. In that, I mean, so here's the author dealing with a group of people that are tempted to throw in the towel on their faith. And he doesn't approach it by saying, well, don't throw in the towel because you might you might burn in hell or you might get punished. I mean, those things might be true. There is punishment for rejecting God. But he doesn't begin there. That's not his starting point for evangelization. He says, look, let me lay out a grand vision of what is that is almost going to be just beyond your full understanding, but is so profound and so beautiful that you can't help but be moved by this grand vision of what's happening in the world. It's not in the negative sense. Don't throw in the towel because there's consequences. Yeah, that's true. That's that's real. But his stake at getting people to not throw in the towel on their faith is saying, look at the beautiful, profound vision and worldview that we actually have. How can you get rid of that? How can you walk away from that? And the answer is, I, I don't fully understand it. But yeah, that's amazing. I want to know more. I want to dig deeper into that. I want to understand. If that's true, I've had people that I've talked to about the faith before say, I don't know if I believe everything you're saying, but if what you're saying was true, yeah, I'd be full on board in that. I don't know if I believe it, but man, that's quite a worldview. Well, this is the thing is when I look at this word mercy, like I I actually am seeing the component of reverence for the first time. I was actually Mm. just talking yesterday with somebody about how the merciful love of God is the mercy is the willingness to not receive merely a singular moment, but to receive the fullness of what being is in front of you. Okay. So, 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 so in a certain sense, the mercy of God is his suffering. Is that, is that this merciful reaction that God has is to say, I'm going to enter in, in humanity I'm going to enter into that as God and so that I can fully receive 
the 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 expression of who man really is now so so to have mercy is to actually not to cease to be a relativistic you actually become yes. historical you become yes. able to take up the full story you have to or else it's not mercy it's not mercy because you're not giving it's the just space condescension. to the to the to, to the reality in front of you to actually oh, that's right. become of self-revelatory to right. to actually unfold in front of you. Otherwise, you're not really being present to something or someone. You're just being present to an idea of something. Right, which is which is people ex- and ideas are always historical. Which is which is Jesus's process of evangelization. Yeah, is, that's it. Is allowing them to actually come to the real being of who he is over time in trust that they're going to work it out. What a perfect segue into the gospel. Was that okay. on purpose? No. Nope. Did you know you were doing that? No, I didn't. Do you see the connection? Yes. I mean, I, I do think it's perfect. Um, so where we pick it up. Because, oh. yeah, yeah, you give some context. Well, I just, and it's what we, I think we ended with it in the gospel last. This is, again, I mean, I, I love that the liturgy is taking us piece by piece through this narrative. Right. But it's so easy to forget from one week to another what just happened. Right. And where we start today, it's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the, what are called the sons of thunder, because they're the ones that are like, hey, Jesus, can we bring down fire on these people that we don't like? <laughs> so they're called the sons of thunder. They're a little bit hot-headed. But they come to Jesus and they... Uh, they go to Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to, to do, do for with us whatever, whatever we, we ask you. Yeah. Which like, is like when you go to your parents and you're like, hey, um, I, I don't know. You try, to, you try to butter them up so that they actually give the answer before you ask the question. No, this is even more brazen than that, though. Like, it's just like, it, there's no buttering up. It's just like, hey, we want you to yeah, do whatever we ask. Like, But they don't tell them what it is yet. No, they need it, the yes first. Yeah, and, and Jesus is, is great. He, he just like, this it's is like, his reverence towards humanity. But again, the context, which I didn't mention, where exactly where we're coming from is Jesus's so far most brutal and kind of R-rated of his predictions of his own passion and death. Mm. He's like, you got, he just literally in the last breath finished saying, we are going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up and I'm going to be abused and beaten and scourged and killed and I will die. And their response to that, if they had been listening to it whatsoever, is, hey, we want you to do what we ask you. So, I mean, there's the brazenness of the question, but they're, they're con- the moment their timing could not be worse or more tactless. <laughs> it's it, it is the equivalent of of you know like you you come home from the doctor or something. You're like Scott. I just came from the doctor and I have I have cancer. Like I I only have a couple of weeks to live. It's really bad. I don't know what to do. And if my response was, Hey, can I have your Jeep? It's right. really cool. You're like, wait, what? I you know like it is so tactless. If if uh, no, even it, that it would, it is would acknowledging be, what you said, it would be even worse than that. It would be it like. Is. Um, hey, Can I we're, we're, we're friends, right? <laughs> like we're, we're friends and you really, you really love me. And, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, can I ask you a pretty intense favor? <laughs> what it is. And you'd be like, yeah, okay. you're like, I want your Jeep. Or I want to raise. I want to raise. I'd be like, that's fine, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At this point, <laughs> at this point, <laughs> check. Yeah. But, but. And, and and it's kind of fun. It's funny to sort of laugh at it, how ridiculous this is. But then really to put yourself in Jesus's humanity, because he really is fully human. So in his divinity, he understands their weakness. But in his humanity, these are his best friends that he just told his darkest secret to, that he is going to suffer and die 
And he's probably pretty scared about that. And he's wearing it in and his he's heart. It. I mean, like, and his friends respond with, "Hey, do what we want you to do, magic maker. We're in the kingdom. Dance, monkey. Well, this is the thing. It's like we're in the kingdom, and um, you know what? Since uh, since you're going away, uh, we got to, we got a kingdom to rule here, bro. Yeah. I don't even know if they acknowledge. You don't even get the sense that they even heard what he said. Yeah. It's like when you're telling someone something really important, well, and they just kind of glaze over. Well, this is the thing: is it's, is it says we want you. Um, uh, he says we we, we may sit one at your right and the other at your left. Meaning, whoa, whoa, whoa! You're getting ahead of yourself. I think the most profound state. I think the most profound statement is the one that is always overlooked, which is this: granted in say, your glory. No, 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 no. When they say the most brazen, tactless hurtful thing imaginable in that context. And they said, do what we tell you to. This is the king. I mean, even even if Jesus wasn't who we know Jesus to be, who is the merciful father, or there's, he's the son, but you know, the merciful God, even if he wasn't, they're, they're, I mean, what king? You almost get the impression that maybe maybe you've been a little too soft, Jesus. Maybe you've been a little too light, on too, too much on the forgiveness and praying for your enemies. Because these guys who are supposed to be under you are kind of wanting to take advantage of you. Like, they're kind of steamrolling you. And I'm so moved in a particular way by Jesus' response to them. And what does he say? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? He actually receives the question. The tactless, hurtful, spit it in your face, power grabbing question Jesus receives. Which is like. And reminded of your concept of reverence, right? He receives them where they are. Right, which is a beautiful. Which is like when I think of like a kind parenting with with errant children who are just. Errant children? (laughs) Who who just are are like have no idea. I'm going to make my children t shirts that say errant child. I'm not. We could lanky cool. guys, errant child, <laughs> yes. errant children, errant lank. But mm. like, and so he, so then, so I love it. And he, they, they, they say in your glory, when you are raised as king, which they get to some degree, there is glory coming. I don't think they understand what the glory is. They don't understand they that know it's the cross that's coming. That's, yep. that's, right. that his enthronement is mm. going to be on the left and the right. That's what's so ironic is he, Absolutely. I want to sit on your left and your right. And he's like, um, bros, you don't even know. What you're even asking. Because someone will sit on his right and his left in his, in his thro- coming to glory. Right. Which is who? The good thief. And the bad thief. Right. There's a good one and a bad one, but that's... That's right. He's like, do you realize actually what you're asking? Because... Mm-hmm. And then what he says... Can you be baptized, drink? And they were like, yeah, we got that. Well, we can't, we can't blow past that. Do you... Do you <laughs> can you drink you're, the cup You're that going I, so slow today. I just... Because this is so rich. Can you drink the cup that I drink? And this theme of the cup is so prevalent in the Gospels. This is the same thing when Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. The cup is literally the passion. It's, it's actually from the Old Testament prophets, I think Hosea and Joel, the cup of wrath that God is going to pour, pour out on the world because of there's a punishment for sin and how awful human beings have become. The Old Testament talks about this cup of wrath that will be poured out on the world and you don't want to be around during that. That's what Jesus is taking upon himself, the cup of wrath. He's like, I'm going to take it. And if you want, can you actually drink the cup as well? But he, anou- he, he, he ties the cup of wrath to their baptism. And this is, I think, the takeaway. And this is how Mark has set up the whole gospel from the beginning. Our baptism actually pledges us to the cross. Because he goes on to say, he's like, you actually will drink the cup that I'm going to 
drink. You don't know what you're asking. You actually don't understand this right now, but you actually will drink this cup. James will be martyred. He will give his life. John is the only gospel, is the only apostle who doesn't get martyred, right? But he gives himself in a pretty profound way. Yeah, you're going to do this. You just don't realize it yet. And it's what you were saying before, this idea of reverence, that he is standing before these little people who don't know what they're asking. They don't know what they're doing with the willingness to walk with them in his mercy, showing them, knowing that they're going to keep going and eventually they will get it. They will drink the cup. They will sit at his glory, at his right and his left in a certain sense, right? They will receive their own crosses, but he has to take this opportunity to again teach them, which they won't get until later on. They won't get it until afterwards in hindsight that, yeah, you guys are talking about greatness. The Gentiles rule it over people. They have their authority and they push it down on people. If you, it can't be so among you guys. Again, they don't get it. They don't hear anything he's saying until after Pentecost, I think. But it can't be so among you. If you want to be first, if you want to be great, you have to be last and you have to be a servant. That's how you'll get the crown. That's how you'll get the glory. That's how you'll get the throne is by emptying and pouring yourself out in totality. You don't get that yet. And Jesus knows that. In his mercy, in his great mercy, he's like, just keep walking. They're well, on the hodos, you, right? Keep well, this, going. This is the thing is that they're, um, the, the, they, he's inverting what they're asking. He says that Absolutely. you want to be in authority. And, and have other people reverence you and go be at your beck and call. Absolutely. And he's like, no, flip it. Right. He's like, and th- that's actually how you know. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then you're going to see glory. Then you're going to see and understand what the glory of God is, is, which is the suffering servant. Because he says, you're going to be the servant of all and you're going to experience. So yes, that's where you're going to drink the cup and you're going to be baptized with my baptism because you are going to be configured to me. And But you don't understand what that means yet Well, because you're not reverent to my project. What's so unprecedented is that... As we talked about at the very beginning, the suffering servant, yeah, the suffering servant is Jesus, but it's Jesus who takes on the whole identity of Israel. He takes Israel upon himself. But then what's totally unprecedented is that he actually invites the apostles into that as well. They too get to take on the suffering of the people of Israel. Their glory, their power, their authority as princes of the church, of the kingdom, as bishops is not to lord power over people. But it is to literally take on all of the suffering of the people. This is precise. I feel like we've talked about this before. This is one of the reasons that the priest wears black. Because part of your job as priest, and bishops wear black as well, part of your job as a priest is literally to take on the suffering of the people of the church. This is why you hear confessions. We put our sins upon you and you bear that. So not only does Jesus do that on behalf of Israel, he invites all of us to actually do that. Well, Jesus bears it, and we just—we are just Simons of Cyrene. This is, this is but he actually allows is, us. Yes, I mean— Because uh, of him, to carry it with him. Right. To and, carry our crosses, to carry each other's crosses. Right, we join him. We join him. That's, a, that's, that's the key thing. Key distinction. Because if you think it's up to you, then you is done. Yeah. So, friends, we thank you. We done as well. God bless you. Uh, farewell. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T. You can find the Lanky Guys at lankyguys.org, and you can send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.